Please be seated. So this summer we've been working our way through the story of Joseph and his family. It's one of the most well-known stories of the Old Testament in which God's plan to bless the world through his chosen people hangs in the balance, teetering back and forth between the dysfunction of his people and the faithfulness of one man, Joseph. But as the story converges on its climax in chapters 42 to 45, we see God at work in other characters. So last week, Caleb did a wonderful job of creatively showing us the transformation that took place in Joseph's older brother, Judah, as he acknowledged his guilt, took responsibility for his family, and stepped up to lead in the midst of dire circumstances. This morning, we finally come to that incredible moment when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. So I hope you'll turn to Genesis 45 with me as I remind you what has happened over the last few chapters. So Genesis 45, I think it's on page 38. So back in chapter 42, Joseph's brothers arrived in Egypt to buy food. The famine that Joseph had predicted was now in its second year and the entire region was suffering. Joseph instantly recognized his brothers when they arrived, but they did not recognize him. And so Joseph devised a series of tests for them in an effort to reveal their character, all in hopes that he could be reconciled to them and their family could be saved. What Joseph knew and what his brothers didn't was that the the fact that the famine was going to last for five more years and the only way he would be able to save his family was by bringing them to Egypt where he could care for them. When the brothers came to Egypt for a second time, with their younger brother Benjamin in tow, Joseph designed a final sequence of tests to see if they were still the sort of men who would sell out a brother in order to save their own skin. So Joseph held a feast for their honor, serving them the finest food from his own table. But he treated Benjamin, the youngest, with special honor, and he heaped five times the amount of food on his plate than he did on the others. This was intentional. It must have felt to the brothers like a repeat of the favoritism their father had once showed to Joseph. The next day, Joseph sent them home to Canaan with grain, but he had hidden his silver chalice in Benjamin's pack. And once the brothers departed, Joseph sent a troop of armed guards after them on suspicion of theft. They discovered the chalice and they held Benjamin responsible. All of the brothers were brought back back to Joseph and Benjamin's life was hanging in the balance. Now it was then, it was then that Judah stepped forward to offer his life for Benjamin's. In his impassioned speech in chapter 44, Judah made it clear that they were no longer the sort of men who would sacrifice a brother for their own convenience. They had changed And Joseph knew it. So by the end of Judah's speech, Joseph has heard enough. He sends his stewards and his attendants out of the room until only his brothers are left. And then with a cry of pent-up emotion so loud that everyone in the compound heard it, he said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Now I can't think of any family reunion as powerful and as complicated as this one. Can you imagine? 
20 years after a heinous crime, the innocent and the guilty now stand before one another with the guilty brothers completely at the mercy of the brother they'd once sold into slavery. Joseph is overcome with emotion at this and the brothers are shocked into silent terror. What a moment. Well, emerging out of this moment, there there are two themes that I want for us to consider this morning. They are the miracle of reconciliation and then the mystery of God's sovereign will. And we'll begin with the miracle of reconciliation. So if you've ever been involved in a major family conflict, you you know just how difficult reconciliation can be. It requires a special kind of work by both the guilty and the offended. And you know, often the lines between guilty and offended, they're blurred. It's rare that one person is entirely innocent and another solely guilty. So how's it done? How do we take a broken situation among family or between friends and begin to mend it so that we can move from brokenness to reconciliation? Well, I want to start with a fairly obvious point, and it's this. We have to bring the conflict into the open. We have to bring the conflict into the open. You know, the sad truth is that most of us are content to let brokenness, dysfunction, and conflict stay hidden in the shadows. We prefer to bury the past and get on with our lives. Instead of dealing with the problem, we drop people. We let friendships die. We stop talking to siblings or to parents. It's just easier this way. At least that's what we tell ourselves. But you know, Joseph in his wisdom didn't allow this to happen. When the opportunity arose for reconciliation, he did something about it. Throughout chapters 42 to 44, he did two things in particular. He maintained a relationship with his brothers, albeit a strange and limited one, while at the same time creating a set of circumstances in which they were confronted by their guilt and given the opportunity to demonstrate that they were changed men. Throughout this time, he was working toward, and I dare say he was praying for, reconciliation. Now, we all have broken relationships. If you're part of a family or you have a close network of friends, then I guarantee you have at least one relationship that has been broken or sorely tested by offense or betrayal. We cannot be content to allow this brokenness to persist while there's still something for us to do about it. Working towards reconciliation is part of what it means to be God's people, but how? When a conflict's been drawn into the open, there are steps that need to be taken by both the guilty and the innocent. I want to talk about the guilty first. So two things took place among the brothers that I want to highlight. The first was their admission of guilt. Back in chapter 42, as the brothers were standing before Joseph, accused of spying, They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
Well, immediately at the time, Reuben put it even more bluntly, saying, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They knew that they had done wrong, and they were still haunted by that guilt. Their trip to Egypt and the strange treatment they received there, it seemed to bring it bubbling up to the surface, but they no longer tamped it down or hid it away. They acknowledged it. The second thing that took place among the brothers was that they demonstrated that they had changed. This culminated in Judah's passionate speech to Joseph in chapter 44 when he put an end to their wickedness by saying that he would die in Benjamin's place in order to save the family. Reconciliation will never take place until these two things happen. I want to speak to those of you who may be the guilty party in a broken relationship. This is probably all of us. Now, you may not bear all the guilt. As I said a moment ago, relationships are always so much more complicated than that. But if you have offended, slandered, or betrayed, even in response to another person's wrongdoing, you're still guilty. As followers of Jesus, committed to his way of doing things, we need to admit this. And we need to admit it not just to the Lord, but to those we have wronged. That takes guts. It also takes incredible humility because our tendency is to focus on the wrongs done to us, not the wrongs we've committed. But I can tell you there's nothing more powerful than when we say to a friend or a sibling or a parent or a child, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? We need more than this, however. We need to show that we've changed. We can't simply say, I'm sorry, and then fall back into old, behavior, old behaviors. In order to build trust where it's been broken, we need to show that we can be trusted, that we've changed. That can take time. I don't know how long it took for the brothers to venture back and forth from Egypt to Canaan, but as they did over time, they showed Joseph by their conduct that they had in fact changed. For reconciliation to take place, the guilty must confess and then repent, meaning turning away from their actions, showing not just remorse, but transformation by the grace of God. But the hard work of reconciliation is not just for the guilty. It falls to the aggrieved as well. Joseph does two things in these chapters that I want you to notice. And the first is he refuses to hold the brother's sin over them. Remember, Joseph is in this position of unparalleled power. He, he's wearing Pharaoh's ring. He could have put his brothers in prison the first time they visited, sent an entourage to Canaan, and brought Jacob, Benjamin, and the rest of the family safely to Egypt in order to save them. But he wanted more than this. He wanted to be reconciled. So when the time was right, he set their sin aside, revealed himself, and asked for a fresh beginning. He refused to hold their sin over them. The second thing that Joseph did was to treat his brothers with compassion. So notice how he speaks to them in our passage. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. 
and they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So Joseph knows that by revealing himself, he has put them, his brothers, in a position of absolute terror. He has all the power in the room at that moment. But instead of wielding his power for retribution, he wields it with compassion. Come near to me, please, he says. What he means is, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. I want to be done with the past and I want to build a new future with you. He goes on to say, in effect, don't wallow in your guilt. I know you're not the men you were. Now's the time not for regret, but for new beginnings. Forgiving someone for the wrong they've done to you is hard. It's really hard. There's always this lingering temptation to hold that guilt over them like a weapon, to remind them that you are morally superior and that they owe you. I've seen this in families where the wrong done by the cynical manipulation of the aggrieved vastly exceeds the wrong done against them in the first place. And Joseph refuses to do this. Instead, he intuitively understands his brother's need to be reassured, and so he treats them with this incredible tenderness. If you've been wronged, keep these things in mind. When the time comes to forgive, which I hope and pray that that time will come, you have to put the past behind you. Sometimes the thing that holds us back from being reconciled isn't the wrong that was done to us, but our own hard-heartedness towards those who sinned against us. Forgiveness is, in part, about relinquishing your power over another person. That is hard and it is humbling. But the power of forgiveness and what it does, it's incredible. Now you may remember that all the way back in Genesis 37, the beginning of the story, we're told that the brothers hated Joseph so much that they couldn't even speak to him. Then in the scene where they sell him into slavery, they don't ever speak to him directly, they only speak about him in his presence. <clears throat> They can't stand him. They throw him in a pit and discuss what to do with him. And then when Joseph reveals himself at the beginning of 40, chapter 45, the brothers are stunned into silence. And, and now that they know who he is, they can't speak to him again. There's no dialogue. But at the end of the scene, when Joseph has shown compassion and humility and forgiveness... We're told in verse 15 that he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked with him. For the first time in the entire narrative, that's the power of reconciliation. Again, how do we do this? How do we find the strength and the humility to bury sin in the past and move on without strings attached to our forgiveness? Well, the secret lies in the second theme 
that dominates this chapter, and that's the mystery of God's sovereign will. So Joseph says to his brothers in verse five, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Twice more, he repeats this theme. In explaining the situation in verse six, he says, for the famine's been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So notice what Joseph says in verse 9. Having said three times that God sent him into Egypt, he adds this further explanation. He says, God made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Remember in chapter 37, Joseph came across as a bit of a spoiled brat. At best, he was oblivious to the way his father favored him. At worst, he was egging his brothers on. He seemed to delight in telling them about his dreams of one day ruling over them. But here, he asserts his power while at the same time recognizing that it was God who gave it to him. He claims no special talent or purity. He doesn't claim the moral high ground. He simply says that God put him in a position to help. The profound truth that lies behind Joseph's ability to forgive and to be reconciled to his brothers is his firm belief that God is doing something bigger and better than any of us can imagine. That he is ultimately in charge of all things and that his sovereign will cannot be thwarted no matter what the circumstances. Of course, it was the brothers' betrayal that landed Joseph in Egypt. But Joseph understood that a far more powerful force lay behind his exile and his slavery. It was the sovereign will of God to place him in Egypt precisely so that he could save his family. That raises so many difficult questions about the relationship between God's will and our wills, about the goodness of God and the wickedness of human beings, and about the place of evil in this world as it relates to God and his goodness. There are more questions here than there are answers. But at the same time, there is this resounding truth that cuts through all of the questions, which is this, God is in control. Joseph knew that no act of evil could separate him from God. Even exile and slavery in a land where no one had even heard of the God he worshipped couldn't separate him from God. His short speech to his brothers is simply soaked in the presence of God. Joseph also knew that no evil act could thwart God's plan. So God had promised through a sequence of powerful dreams that he, Joseph, would rule over his family. And it's clear from Joseph's word to his brothers that he'd come to understand God's promise to him as part of God's promise to Abraham to bless their family and through them to bless the world. So notice how he said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph knew this wasn't just about him. 
This was about the eternal purposes of God for his whole extended family. And that gave Joseph confidence to trust. Because Joseph knew that no act of evil could separate him from God or thwart God's plan, uh, he was able to live with the uncertainty of exile and imprisonment. He was able to handle then the pressure of near absolute power. And ultimately, he was able to turn to his brothers with grace and forgiveness. Now, we know these same things about God because of the testimony given to us by Joseph and the story of his life. But we know even more than this because we have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Unlike Joseph, when Jesus was betrayed and sold for a bag of silver, he wasn't merely enslaved, he was killed. While Joseph endured a pit and prison, Jesus endured the grave. If anything could have thwarted the will of God, it ought to have been the death of his son. But it was precisely this awful act of evil that was at one and the same time God's greatest act of grace. Just as God sent Joseph to Egypt in order to save his people, so he sent his son to the cross in order to bring salvation to every tribe and nation. Joseph rose up from prison to rule over a nation. Jesus rose from the grave to rule over all creation. God reconciled us to himself through the death and resurrection of his son. And by the forgiveness offered to us on the cross, he enables us to be reconciled to one another. The miracle of reconciliation between and among us, it is possible only because of the mystery of God's sovereign will that we see in the cross and in the empty grave. Let's pray together. Lord God, there's so much to think about here. I pray that you would take this story and these words and let them linger in our hearts and minds as we consider the conflicts that we're involved in as broken and sinful men and women. I pray for those of us who are guilty, who need to confess, repent, turn around and seek forgiveness. I pray for those of us who have been sinned against, that we would maintain relationships, that we would keep our hands open, that we wouldn't hold the sin of others over them like weapons, that we would treat them with compassion and humility and be ready to forgive. Lord, I pray for our broken relationships in our families, our marriages, among friends. I pray that you would do a great and healing and reconciling work. And that as you do this, you would glorify yourself and you would demonstrate your grace and your goodness and your power to the world. We know that this kind of reconciliation is only possible because of your gracious and sovereign will. Because you've reconciled us to you through your son Jesus and you have set us on a course to salvation and complete transformation by the power of your spirit. 
May we, like Joseph, trust in your plan. May we submit ourselves willingly and even joyfully to your plan, even in the midst of hardship, that we might experience the grace and the joy of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and of eternal life with you. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus, whose cross was the ultimate gift of grace. Amen.